This show is sponsored by FIS. Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Welcome to Breaking Banks. I'm your host, Brett King. Thanks for being back with us, the number one fintech radio show and podcast globally. This week, we have a very special guest. She's the CEO and founder of Her Money, and her name is Jean Chatsky. Jean, welcome to Breaking Banks. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So first of all, before we dive into sort of financial well-being and the pandemic and all that sort of stuff, tell me a little bit more about Her Money and why you you founded that. So I have been a personal finance journalist for 30 years. I um, spent most of my career at every personal finance magazine on the planet, 25 years at the Today Show. And along the way, I learned that women handle money and our emotions about money differently. We we have different needs. We have different priorities. And we often need a safe space in which to figure out what move to make next. So I launched the Her Money podcast about five years ago and Her Money Media a few years after that to provide this community for women to support each other in making decisions about money. And we've had a very good pandemic. We um, we launched a coaching program, um, which is, uh, a, a, we call it FinTouch. It's a little bit of FinTech, but with some nice. coaching. We... Um, We've got uh, growth in the podcast, growth in our newsletters, and and our Facebook community is going strong. So um, I hope that your listeners will check us out. Thank you. And you help people find uh, financial advisors that are right for them. You have a, a money type personality uh, profile or test that you have on the site. So you've got a ton of tools, it seems like, to help people find a, a, a way to manage their money. We do, and that's because you have to meet people where they are, right? There are some people, and you know this so well, there are some people who just need an answer to a question in the moment. What credit card should I get today? Right. What sort of life insurance do I need? And we can do that. But there are other people who are approaching retirement. They want a financial advisor to work with them one-on-one. -on -one. We've got this free matching service to help people find a fiduciary advisor to work with them. And there are other people who are in the middle and are trying to wrangle their finances so that they've got a better sense of where their money is going. Our eight-week coaching program helps them get a quick start on that. Excellent. All right. Well, let's let's dive into a little bit more detail in respect to, you know, from from your expertise in terms of giving people advice on how to manage their money and, um, you know, particularly invest in respect to the longer term. Um, how would you assess the impact overall of the pandemic on people's financial well-being and financial health overall? I mean, my view is it's been pretty um, you know, dramatic. It's been dramatic in two ways. It's been hugely helpful for one group of people and devastating for another right. group of people, right? You've got you've got th this K-shaped recovery that they started that the economists in 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 DC started talking about early on has really come to be the case. So you've got people who maintained their jobs, were able to continue to make contributions to retirement, maybe had the luxury of grabbing some stimulus dollars in the United States, who stopped 
going out, stopped traveling. And what we saw was that their savings rate went through the roof. They had all of this additional money that they were able to make smart decisions about how they wanted to use it and what they wanted to do with it to build their future. And by the way, as they continued to invest, the markets really took care of them um, as long as they didn't sit on the sidelines in March and never get back in. But you've got another group of people and and many women who were either forced out of the workforce, had industries that collapsed, um, were not able to get work, had to retreat to home to care for kids or parents. The stimulus dollars were nice, but not enough. And, And they are really struggling to get back on their feet. Um, I mean, we are seeing people get back to work. We're we're seeing a lot of movement there, and that's fantastic. But with the Delta variant raging, it's unclear how long um, how long it will take for these people to recover the um, the momentum that they had just started to gather in their financial lives. And that's the killer, right? After the Great Recession. We had a decade and a half of stagnant wages, a decade and a half where where wages just didn't move. And they had just started to move when the pandemic hit. And and so for all of these people who saw light finally at the end of the tunnel, it just collapsed. In fact, uh, real wage growth has has been very slow since the 1980s. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what we see is, uh, you know, in, in the ni- late 1970s and 1980s with the, um, you know, particularly um, in the UK, but obviously also in the US, the focus on collective bargaining and trade unions and so forth, the restrictions that were put on those mechanisms, you suddenly had employers had a lot more power in terms of setting uh, wage policy or um, and, and that's had a, a deleterious effect long term. You know, um, wage growth used to parallel um, sort of CPI growth and consumption and all of those things from an economic perspective, but the wheels sort of fell off that in the 1980s so you know how do you how do you think structurally we we fix that problem in the economy i know we debate minimum wage a lot as an example um but that 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 issue you spoke about in terms of real wage growth um now that you know the lower to middle income households in the U.S. are so significantly affected by that disparity, and we have the worst inequality in the U.S. today since its founding as a nation. You know what do we do to fix that? Yeah, I I, I think we need a solution that that comes from the top down. I mean, I think we need governmental intervention in order to fix it. I look a lot at independent contractors right? Independent contractors have have made this very bad bargain um, when it comes to doing the work, but not getting the benefits, not getting the the health plan. That boggles my mind how, how, how the drivers and, and so many people could have voted for, for that. And now there's a lawsuit and and we'll see what happens. But I, I, I think we're going to need to see some additional protections and that's not really where the mindset of much of at least the United States is right now. So um, I think especially now when employers are struggling to bring people on because businesses are growing it's a real opportunity for people to look at fixing their own individual economies yeah. by applying for jobs that have that benefits net um, that offer you those those protections and getting out of that situation where you don't have them. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm obviously um, thinking also into the future here as more and more automation um, starts to impact uh, the labour force. 
um, you know, particularly in developed economies. In the past, we've seen historically that when you have, um, you know, new um, uh, booms in job creation, such as what we saw with the dot-com, uh, you know, which also destroyed jobs or some jobs, but, um, you know, same with the Tronics boom in the 60s and so forth. You know, you do see a labor shortage in the in the short term because, you know, we haven't been training for the right skills. So we, we see right now in terms of data scientists and AI specialists, you know, the, you know there are so many job openings for those types of skills. Um, but at the same time, we also can't get people take on sort of minimum wage jobs mm-hmm. in restaurants and things at the moment. So it's a it's a really interesting market when, you know, we've just come off this period of the highest unemployment the nation's ever seen. Um, and you'd think everybody would be, you know, scrambling to get uh, to get a job, uh, uh, you know, after the pandemic. But um, structurally, we have this issue where the jobs that are going to continue to become available may not be those jobs that that people have the right skill sets for as well. Yeah, um, we we need a serious program to retrain. Um, a lot of the workforce in this country, but it's totally possible. I I have two members of my family who have just recently uh, gone through coding boot camps, um, tripled their salaries in six months, are looking at unlimited opportunities at this point. And granted, not everybody has the, the right mindset, I think, to be a coder. Or Um, aptitude, maybe. Or aptitude, exactly. But I do think there are a lot of skills programs. We we have to understand that we don't need to go back and get another four-year degree and take on a mountain of debt in order to refresh our skill set. Yeah. Um, so let's let's talk about the tools that are increasingly available now. Obviously, um, you know you you focus a lot on financial wellness and having a financial plan and so forth. But um, you know, it, 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 one of the big issues we have, um, and this is not just a, a U.S. problem, but budgeting, which since the early 1900s has been held up as the mechanism that, you know, people should use to help them save, um, actually doesn't work well for most Americans, um, you know, because it requires a ton of discipline Mm -hmm. to be effective. But, you know, how do you see the emergence of technology um, and, you know, the, the use of our smartphones and AI and so forth, providing potentially alternative ways of getting people to save and change their behavior? You know, how important do you see that, you know, particularly for the millennial audience? It's huge. It's huge. And we learned this lesson back with the automation of employees into 401ks. That was a total game changer for 401ks. Human beings are really not wired for budgeting. We're not wired to save first and, and spend later. We're wired for instant gratification. And that makes us really bad natural managers of our own money. And so automation in whatever form you can get it into the habit loop is exactly what's required to enable people to succeed. I think the reason the budgeting doesn't work is because you can't budget in a vacuum. You have to understand where your money is going and then make changes in where you want your money to go. And that's basically what a lot of these apps do but they also right. they also essentially gamify and restructure the flows of funds so that you save first and you only spend with what's left or every time you spend, you save a little bit on top. I mean, they're set up in a lot of ways and, and I think different solutions appeal to different people, right? Some people want to get into a program where if they 
spend a little bit of money or save a little bit of money, they have a chance to win more money. And other people like the acorns approach where every time they, they spend something, they level up a little bit or digit that does it in the background for you and just takes a certain amount of money. The computer figures out you're not going to overdraw and, and just puts it in savings, but it has to happen continually. It's best if it happens early in your life. And then you got to get the money out of savings where it's earning nothing and invest it. Absolutely. No, I, I, the other one I noticed that you focus on a little bit is, um, supplemental income, helping people get a bit of additional, um, work. So you, you've got, uh, work from home jobs for moms on your side and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you talked about the independent contractors, but the gigging economy is actually very good for this supplemental work stuff, right? hundred percent because it feels like free money. If, if it's not your regular paycheck, it, it feels like supplemental income. And then it's easier. There's a phenomenon in behavioral finance called mental accounting. And mental accounting basically asserts that if you can get your pools of funds into separate accounts, it's easier to apply that money to separate goals. When you've got a gig job and that money's coming in, maybe to a separate checking account or a separate savings account, you can right. put it to work against whatever goal you think is your top priority. Yeah, but one of the challenges itself with those sort of gold buckets or the envelope method is, you know, if you've got a small envelope, it tends to fill up quickly and you can spend that you can spend that, but the longer term objectives of, you know, the retirement, paying for your kids' education, all of those things, they tend to suffer a little bit. So how do we um, balance that trade-off between the short, you know, fulfilling those short-term goals, but still keeping our eyes on the prize of sort of the longer term goals that we have? I tend to focus on the longer term goals first. I think I think if we can just move the money and get it out of the way, then whatever we're left with becomes that discretionary pool of money that we can use for life. So if we can get ourselves to put away 15% for the long term, including if you get it in the United States, yep. we get matching dollars, right? In a 401k. Right. If you can just get that money started, get it going, don't turn it off. Um increase the numbers as you get raises to keep up with that 15%. Um, Then the rest of your goals, you can approach sort of out of that other pool of money. But it's the the long-term goals, because they're so um, important, if you keep that money in your if you keep it in in the same pool or the same pot as everything else, you're going to lose track of it. I, I'm a big believer in different accounts for all of your goals, right? I mean, I think I like that banks, once you have a minimum, will allow you to open separate savings accounts as as many as you want. And I've done this in my own life when I have a goal for not just college and a 529, but when I turned 50, I wanted to take my family on a big vacation and I didn't want to see massive credit card bills on the back end. So I just opened an account and I started putting money in there over the course of time so that it was just there and I didn't have to deal with it um, when I got back. Where, where do you see crypto fitting in all of this? Oh man, you are talking to the wrong woman. Um, (laughs) I, I think, I, I think crypto is not going away, but at this point for me, I still have crypto on the same path as sort of my angel investments, right? I have a pool of money, five, five to 10% that if I lose it, it's not going to make a difference in my life. It's not going to make a difference in retirement or college or anything like that. And that's where I take risks. That's where I'll put money into crypto. It's where I'll put some money into, um, into small companies that I think have promise. And that's how I think most people should be approaching this. If you are struggling to get to 
the the point where you've got enough for retirement, I don't think you belong in crypto. I don't think you belong in, yeah. in angel investments. I don't think you belong in in IPOs. I think you need a, a boring portfolio that's going to keep up with the markets over time and, and do its work for you with low fees and a, a minimum of work. But if you're doing a little better than that, if you've got some discretionary income, if you've got money that you would otherwise spend on a car you really don't need or a vacation that you could give or take, you want to do something else with it that you can use that for crypto. Mm. Now, um, uh, so we'll, we'll stay off the crypto uh, topic then, but um, I, I am interested in AI's impact on this area. Um, you know, um, I, I think, you know, millennials in particular, we, we, and, and Gen Z's and the alphas, um, or zoomers, I think as they're being called now, but, um, when, when we tend to look at investment strategies and working with an advisor, one of the things that the traditional system has emphasized repeatedly is financial education. Right, but most of that education um, is designed to enable you to talk the language of the financial services industry, understanding asset classes, portfolio management, portfolio rebalancing, all of those sorts of terms that the industry uses. Whereas the basic training of how to just save money and understand, you know, how you should be looking at your spending and those things you talked about earlier, you know, tends to, you know, it's it, it sort of skills you just have to pick up on the street. Um, but as the technology comes, we're seeing more tools, as you mentioned, Digit and Acorns, helping people sort of change their behaviours and prioritise differently. So do you see a time when people will effectively, you know, just put the management of their wallet and their money overall onto an AI platform and just say, just tell me what I can spend each week or, or something like that? Some people. Um, I mean, I think you've hit on a really important difference here. There is a huge difference between financial education and behavior change. And what we've learned is that financial education doesn't always drive behavior change. Right. And that's right. that's why the rise of AI, that's why the rise of all of these tools has been such a positive force. Um but I think there are three different types of people in this world. I think there are people who want to do it. I think there are people who want help doing it. And I think there are people who want you to do it for them. Right. And, and these tools will fit into their lives in very different ways. People who want to, the people on Robinhood right now who are having a great time watching the impact that they are having on particular stocks in particular markets, they want to do it. You know, they, they want to be in the mix and having a bot take it out of their hands is not going to satisfy them. But for those people in the middle who want help doing it, I think the bot will be helpful. I mean, one of the things that I've found very interesting is even when you look at the robo-advisor platforms, the biggies, many of them have added advisors back into the mix. They started by saying, we're just going to, we're going to give you an algorithm. You're going to fill out a questionnaire and we're going to, you'll, you'll put money in automatically every single month. We'll invest it. Boom, you're done. But then those same people said, okay, but how much can I spend on a house? You know, right, how much right. am I on track for my retirement? I uh, what happens when I get a big tax bill? Right. So so they needed to add actual individuals back into the loop in order to help those people. Um, there there are times when you need a full financial advisor and there's times when you just need some advice. And I think I think those solutions in the middle are are really great for that. And it the nice thing about them and the whole financial advisory space is that there are many more price points than they used to be. 
Um, financial advisors yeah. used to just be for people who had significant assets. And now because of these new tools and firms, you can get help all along the continuum as you earn and build wealth. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, we've got a couple of minutes left. I want to uh, finish off with talking about the podcast just quickly, but um, how long do you think we're still going to have uh, the credit scoring system in the U.S.? Oh man, I don't see it going away. Do you? Well, I I, I, I want to believe that we could have a better system, but it's so ingrained. I think you're you're right. It's a challenge, right? I think it's a challenge. I like what I'm seeing in that other pieces of information for people who don't have a, a traditional banked life are are slowly making their way into the mix, yeah, and that's yeah. that's a real positive. Because because it's it's kept people out of um, being able to to grow wealth and and build a traditional financial life when they haven't had a, a decent credit score or haven't been able to build yeah. one. So, um, how can people find more about Gene and and your podcast and your um, your website, your well, services? Thanks. If you go to hermoney.com, you will find all of those tools that you mentioned earlier, the ability to find an advisor to take our finance fix program. Um, and uh, we put our podcasts up there, but we um, we put out a new episode once a week. We've got great guests and a lot of, um, we do a lot of Q and A with our, with our listeners. You can uh, find it at Apple podcasts or really anywhere podcasts are dropped. Fantastic. Well, Jean Chatsky from Her Money, thank you very much for joining us and giving some of your valuable time and insights to the Breaking Banks audience. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Hope to have you on again sometime. Thanks. Thanks very much. All right, guys, you're listening to Breaking Banks. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. The way we move money is changing. We want to send money in real time to the other side of the world. We want everything in one place, integrated, seamless, and on our devices. Embedded, fast, standardized, frictionless, and secure. These are our financial futures. The Financial Futures podcast by FIS explores fintech innovation and the trends that are already transforming the way the world pays, banks and invests across the globe, and the mechanisms we'll need to prosper in this brave new landscape. Is the world's technology up to the challenge? Are we? Find Financial Futures on your favorite podcasting app. FIS, advancing the way the world pays, banks and invests. Welcome back from break to Breaking Banks. Uh, I'm your host, Brett King. And joining me for the second half of the show today is my good pal, Dave Birch, all the way from Woking in London. Hey, Brett. Hey, how are you, man? Very good. Partly because I'm not in Woking, but... (laughs) There you go. And uh, he's not in Woking because he's uh, at uh, Erica Stanford's place. Uh, Erica is the author of Crypto Wars, Fake Deaths, Missing Billions and Industry Disruption. She's also the founder of the Crypto Curry Club, UK's number one rated business and tech uh, networking events uh, organisation. Erica, thank you for joining us on Breaking Banks. Thank you so much for having me. Nice to meet you. So we, we um, you know, your book is very timely. Obviously, um, you know, you, you, uh, you know, we, we continue to hear about uh, crypto scams and, and various, uh, um, you know, things happening in the world. Um, but, um, you know, what gave you the idea to sort of put this book in writing and, um, you know, what was the, the impetus behind, behind this idea for crypt, the Crypto Wars book? Um, I'd love to take all credit. The only truthful answer for what inspired the book that the publishers reached out to me, it was their idea to do a book about crypto scams called That's Crypto That's not bad, right? They, they'd already done a couple in a series about sort of all the bigger cyber hacks and, and cyber crimes and sort of corporate infighting. And they wanted to do one about crypto and I think reached out to me probably because I've got the Crypto Curry Club. It's it's the main crypto community in the UK. So you must know about crypto because you've got crypto in your business name. Yeah, I mean, that, that that's the theory. And um, <laughs> we'd had a couple of events about, about crypto scams. So um, 
so they, they asked if I wanted to do it. And, and I'd done a little bit of digging into the crypto scams at yep. the time and, and, and took on their idea. I was like, yeah, this will be fun. I've never done a book before. It was the start of lockdown, which was just perfect timing and, and a total blessing. So kind of what, how hard can this be? This will be a bit of fun. Let's do it. And it ended up taking the entirety of lockdown. <laughs> Oh, I've just written my seventh book and no, I was just going to say it doesn't get easier. It, 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 it particularly because oh. I think you get more ambitious, right? You know, with, with each book you want to write. Thanks. Thanks for that comment, by the way, Dave. Right. See, I, I <laughs> thought you were going to say it gets easier every time and quicker and more efficient. Yeah, no, every well, time. I think you get better at writing. Um, sure. But I, you know, I think in terms of, um, the the ease of, of writing. I well, you know, uh, for me as an author, I've taken on more um, ambitious projects each time, right? So anyway, uh, it's not about it's not about me. <laughs> I think the, thing, um, the, the reason why the I think the reason why the book stands out. I mean, not just to me, to other people. It's been it's been number one in categories on Amazon. I think in this particular area, it's really difficult to write a book because things just change every week. Right. So to sit and write something which kind of actually hangs together, which is actually, is a, you know, a good read. It tells a good story, but you learn from it as well. I think that's actually quite difficult in the current circumstances. Um, I mean, yes, yeah. you had the lockdown. So in a way you were aided by that. But come on, this space changes every week. It, it, How it, did you choose? It's what so dynamic, about? yeah. I, I had to go back and because there were a few edits by the time I sent it to the publisher and got it back and they sent it to a legal editor so I had to, to take to take a chapter out and I had to make so many changes because things changed so much in, in yeah. over the course of the year. So I kept going back to sort of old chapters and changing. But, you know, it was, it was interesting. When I started, I'd never written anything since uni, not since my dissertation, which had been a painful, difficult experience. And so the, the first one, I was just Googling, like, how to write a chapter. <laughs> and then I got more confident and realised I can write as I think, which is a little bit sort of dry, right. a little bit cynical, a little bit of sort of laughing at myself, and maybe I'm the only one that understands it. And, and I, I just sort of got into writing as as sort of my mind was processing things and then I, I did the dad test on it so my dad the, kind dad of the, entire, test. the dad test so my dad lovingly read the entirety of it twice and 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 commented on anything that wasn't sort of absolute idiot proof right. i.e to make sure he could understand it so anything remotely techie was was just taken out that's kind of cool because there's a, there's there's a lot of scammers to choose from, frankly. I mean, Brett and I were just chatting before. You know, there's yet another hack yesterday. Yet another exchange vanishes, and you don't know was it was it really a hack? Was it an inside job? Was it a you know a rug pull? And they they said mm -hmm. there's so many of these things to choose from. But you're trying to illustrate certain points about the evolution of an industry. So. How did you go about choosing, you know, the, mm. the key? The, yeah, I, I can see there are one or two key. I know you're not supposed to have favorite scams, <laughs> are you? I'm not sure if that's quite true. You've got one of my absolute favorites in there, which is OneCoin and the Crypto Queen. But how did you choose your sort of core scams to get um, going? I, I think some were based on just they were the biggest ones and there was the most information out there. Some were just based on these are essential to be told as part of the sort of the history of, of the bad side right. of crypto. And, and then there was others I was, I was looking at and some there's just not a lot of information out there at all. And other ones, they haven't yet been proven to be a scam. And, and hence right. I ended up writing more and, and having to take some, some bits out. Um, because it, it, it turns out if you write about things and call them a scam before a, a court had proven, yeah. proven to be a scam and they arrested everybody. It could so be a bit embarrassing getting, for the right. publisher. And, <laughs> and well, and, and and for me, and I, I met people. I mean, the, the conversation that I had when when researching and speaking to people in the crypto carry club. I mean, who've been in the crypto space since you know since since sort of Bitcoin day one, pretty much. And you know, some of them had literally had death threats um, for trying to expose scams or trying to go to law enforcement about scams or, or warning people about them. And you know, I've seen all sorts of things like you know, legal letters through to death threats, through to, you know, governments warning them if certain people enter the country because their lives would be at risk. So, wow. you know, you've got all of these stories from people that I got to know like quite well. So I don't <laughs> want to be in the position that I'm I'm the one 
shaking up just, too much. <laughs> uh, let's just say there are things that are not in the book which you know you wanted to put in the book, but oh, it yeah. would have got you in trouble. Maybe volume two in a couple of years. <laughs> Very cool. What are the what are the scams in here that you think? I, I I just have one question before we get into the, the scams mm-hmm. about the writing process. Um, do you have a particular place that you write or a you know particular time of the day? I I'm always interested in this because I write in coffee shops, right? And right. so the COVID was uh, really difficult for me to write yeah. without that. But what about yourself? So, you know, interesting. I was in a coffee shop. Um, the, just the other week in in London, overlooking the Thames, it was just super quiet, super empty, but just in these big armchair sofas, right overlooking the Thames, and it was that's the thing. Down yeah. outside, it was raining outside, and I was like, this would have been the perfect spot. As as it was, <laughs> exactly. it was locked down. We had a, you know, we've just getting out of a year and a half, pretty much of lockdown. It was locked down the entirety of it, which was a blessing. Yeah. Um, so um, we've got actually in this in this room in, in the conservatory, I escaped to my family's place for lockdown. Um, We've got a nice big armchair and I, I had a, a laptop, you know, what, what proved to be really useful. I've got a MacBook and I was, I was given a different laptop, um, which which is a Dell laptop. And I, I'd right. never used a non-Apple thing before. And I'm very techy. So, you know, what was really cool is this really super powerful laptop and it's really fast and it doesn't heat up. MacBooks are useless. They just overheat and you can't have them on your lap. Um, but this thing just didn't heat up at all. And because I'm not super techy, I didn't really know how to use it. So I had Word on it and I had an internet browser on there. And that was it. No email, right. no WhatsApp, no notifications, nothing else. So I just sat no in crypto wallets. There. Nothing. And I, I just sat in this in this armchair all day long with this laptop on my lap and and and, and just sort of either researched or wrote and Breaking you know, Banks is brought to you by Dell laptops today. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So um Dave, what what are the questions you have about the scams? No, I just I, I, I kind of want to ask because one of the things, you know, when I when I'm reading the book, I'm I'm thinking like, okay, what what are the lessons here? For going, I mean, these are entertaining stories, right. but I'm kind of always looking for the lessons in them as well. And I, and I just wondered, you know, are there are there you know one or two that you'd pull out that have that have real lessons for the future in them? I, I think there's a few. I mean, one of the main trends in in crypto scams, and it was brought about by by OneCoin, which is still thought to be the biggest scam that's brought in a you know a subtle I think twenty five billion dollars estimated. That it's conned out of its victim now, but they they blended multi-level marketing with crypto. Now I'm quite open and willing to be opinionated about multi-level marketing. I, I am absolutely amazed that it's legal and that companies get away with it. But the the concept is legal. It's a sort of a pyramid scheme where people earn big commissions for yeah. selling things, and it's legal when you're selling real life products. And you know, yet even when it's legal, an estimated ninety eight percent of people lose lose all their money that they invest by trying to promote multi-level marketing. But when you you bring this sort of really highly incentivized commission, pyramid-shaped commission structure to crypto products where the, the product isn't anything other than a, an imaginative cryptocurrency where if you buy this, you'll get rich quick. Or if you buy these crypto coins, they'll double in quantity or they'll double in value. Or if you send us your, your Bitcoin, we'll trade it for you using our magical trading <laughs> bot and you'll get double the value. Or send us your Bitcoin, we'll just send you back double. Or send us your Bitcoin, we'll mine Bitcoin for you and then you'll get X percent guaranteed profit or whatever the claim was. It was all about paying really high commission to people to get people to part with their Bitcoin and, and the way crypto and the way Bitcoin works is once you send that transaction, you've sent that transaction. You can't just call your bank and say, here, a scam yeah. can give me my money back. Um, you, you've sent that transaction. So there's all these multi-level marketing schemes that are still ongoing today, mm. all over social media, all over Facebook, all over the internet, and, and paying really high commissions to get people to send their Bitcoin for whatever promise. And I think the worst thing is, I mean, like with sort of any Ponzi scheme, they pay out at, at the start. So they con innocent people. Of course, you've got the whole multi-level marketing sort of networks of, of people who, whose 
only game is is to to just get as much commission as they can before moving on to the next before it's found out to be a scam but it also cons innocent people who fall for it and believe that actually this is good because i've i've sent x money and i've got more money back and then they go and tell their friends and their families and their communities and everything so often the people that are sort of leading others to be scammed are our friends and family and people that they know who yeah. aren't doing it by sort of by bad design that of course they're incentivized by the commissions but they genuinely believe it's good so i, I think the main thing in crypto is, is sadly you really can't trust anyone even yeah. if it's, it's people that that you know you've really got to do your own research and you know and the scams will make so many claims they'll say oh we're registered by whatever government authority or we're we're going to be listed on whatever global stock exchange or we're partnering with so and so companies yeah, or we've got such and such people on our advisory board Dave Birch is an advisor right yeah. um, that's a key one to look out for. yeah uh, and um <laughs> but, but they make all these claims and none of it are true but people of course see these really impressive looking Let- websites and and believe it and I guess lesson number two is you've got to do an awful lot of research to uh, to see if the claims are true. Can I, can so, I so, sorry, go couple, ahead, Dave. There's a couple of particular things in the book I wanted to ask you about while, while we've got Brett here. Um, you have a whole section on John McAfee. Yeah. What do you think of John McAfee? I mean, that was written the before. The late lamented That, was, that was written before he died, I should add. And I think none of us were expecting his uh, death slash murder. Um, what what do I think of McAfee? I, I I think when you when you really look back at his history, I think he's had actually a really hard life. Um, yeah. You know, I, I don't think one can underestimate that. And he had addiction problems, and you, you know, in 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 many ways, he was an incredible guy, a really smart guy. And you know, I, I think he hasn't had the easiest time of it. That saying, there was some clear market manipulation going on. Uh, the, the, you know, he he took um, a, a lot of money from various projects and, and was promoting them. And, and he did these ICO coin of the day tweets where he just sent out these tweets and to, to promote projects. And, and you know, the, the thing is, at the time, he had about 700,000 followers on, on Twitter. And, and he had huge influence on the space because he was seen as being sort of the, the founder of of you know, sort of cyber protection, and he sort of foresaw the need um, for, for things. So he was seen as being a real expert in tech, and people really believed his expertise in crypto. So he had this huge influence. And in one of his tweets, he just tweeted and pumped a, a project by $2 billion. And he was just being paid by some of these projects to promote them. And a lot of people bought, and a lot of people rushed, and a lot of people lost a lot of money. So, you know, all, all things standing, he's still caused a lot of people to lose a lot of money without uh admitting did, that he was did, being paid did, by the but did he, did he know those icos were scams or, or i think anybody that intelligent would know that either they're scams or maybe he didn't know that they're scams but even so anybody would do a bit of digging to see that um maybe this project doesn't actually have a use case maybe this project hmm. doesn't actually have a business case maybe you know not everything is is perfect and uh, you know the, the tweets were, were just really short and sharp and sweet it was really just to promote so i i i think anybody with that intelligence and that influence would have an onus to to do so erica where do you stand on um you know cryptocurrencies in general being called a ponzi scheme um, I, I don't think that's valid at all. Um, you know, that it's like calling money a, a Ponzi scheme, which, you know, many other people would would equally argue. And, you know, the way some governments are printing um, has an element. Of- yeah, 40% of the US currency in existence has come into existence in the last 10 years. Yeah. Right. And and other countries, uh, the inflation rates are are worse and I think we'll see worse to come still. Um, so no, I, I don't think that's valid at all. Um, Bitcoin is, is a remarkable invention. It's, you know, and I think with crypto, you've got Bitcoin and you've got a few other cryptocurrencies and then you've got the thousands of other ones. And, you know, if you look at, say, the ICO period, it's now been um, found that 98% of the cryptocurrencies that were launched between 2016 and 2018 in the whole sort of ICO bubble either were scams or failed or lost their investors, all of their money. Were all of them Ponzi schemes? No, some of them were. Um, so, you know, I, I, I just don't think one can put so they crypto weren't, in they a lump. Weren't, they weren't all criminals. 
No, some, some of them, them were opportunistic, just, some of were them were stupid. bad luck, some of them were just Some stupid. of them were just bad business people. Um, now, yeah. one, I, one I really like, I don't know if you covered it in, in the book, is just the Sun Exchange with the RA token. I know, Dave, you've heard me talk about this before, but, um, you know, the, these guys deploy these solar panels which you can buy either using, you know, fiat or Bitcoin, right. and they deploy these, and for every kilowatt of energy they produce, you generate a, a token, right, a RA right. Um, which is a great name for a solar energy-based coin, right? Um, but you know, it, it, you know, and they've got all the, the the solar panels are on the blockchain, and it's like it's the perfect example of a utility token, um, really cleverly designed, you know. Um, and uh, you know, I think if we could find those utility mechanisms and find ways to encourage, you know, positive behavior, you know, particularly around ESG and things yeah. like that, I think tokens definitely have a role to play. But uh, yeah. And I, I think with crypto, I mean, there's, there's so many incredible use cases. You can send crypto cheaply and internationally and, and quickly. And in many cases, way cheaper than you can fiat currency you can send fractions of, of 1p or fractions of ascending crypto which just isn't feasibly with with fiat currency so you've got the whole potential for micropayments micropayments microinsurance so no don't think all crypto is a ponzi scheme there are some pretty impressively big ponzi schemes that have taken advantage I have of crypto to just, i have to just ask you while, while brett's here because i know he's interested in this as well i've got to just ask you what do you make of the whole quadriga thing our, fa- our favorite Canadian crypto uh, scam uh, uh, so far. So Quadriga is is part of the the fake deaths of the the title of the book. Um, so tell me about that. Yeah, I didn't ask uh, you about the fake deaths. So Quadriga was at one point the the biggest and most popular crypto exchange in Canada, and it was it was started when you know in the earlier days of crypto, and and people trusted the guy and thought, well, this is a good Canadian crypto exchange. It must be it must be good. And then the the founder. Uh, wrote a, a honey uh, a will um, four days before he went on honeymoon to India, where he sort of died under a few mysterious circumstances. And and then subsequent investigations found out well actually they'd been money laundering and running a Ponzi scheme from the start, and that the whole thing was basically a Ponzi scheme from the start, and that the exchange was just doomed to fail, and you know, all the money was gone. So anyhow, the the, the founders either died slash disappeared, and the investors lost about 250 million dollars of of their money um the the thing is a, a body was sent back to canada and buried and and he's deemed to have died um but there are still investigations going on and and people demanding that his body be exhumed and and investigated to see is this actually his body or what is there a body there um yeah. I, I think the thing with with Quadriga, it, maybe it was really bad luck maybe he died um, either way, it's a scam from the start, and I don't imagine he'll resurface. I've just yet to meet a single person in the crypto space who believes he died. Not if, you, you know, if you if you disappear with two hundred fifty million dollars, that's a a pretty good way to start a new life, right? Get a new identity and <laughs> right, especially when you've been getting money out of the country for a while before then, supposedly. Right. So we'll we'll see, and you know probably we'll never know. And you know, as far as anybody that invested in the exchange or held the money there is is concerned, I mean, realistically, it's you know it's a sad loss of their money. Um, but it yeah, it was a scam from the start. There's a, so, there's a great sorry, book. sorry, Dave, go. Oh, sorry. There's a there's a great book called The History of American Fraud, um, which I it's just one of my all time favorite books. And and you know, you say right at the beginning of the book, it's like the Wild West. Hmm. And it seems to me a lot of these frauds are the same frauds that existed out on the frontier 150 years ago. We, we've moved yeah. them into the sort of virtual age, mm. but there are very few of them which are, you know, you, you'd really say they're properties of Bitcoin. It's nothing to do with they're Bitcoin. properties of people, right? Yes, yeah. So Bitcoin or, or in, you know, now NFTs, they, they're just a they're just a vehicle that a fraudster can use, right? right? But, but um. I'm interested, Erica, in in terms of all of this research that you did. Obviously, you're still bullish on crypto generally. Yeah. So, um, you know, how how do we how do we prevent or restrict um, or dampen um, the fraudulent activity so that crypto um, can become a legitimate part. I mean, it is a legitimate part of the econ- economy, I guess, or the economic system. But you know, how do we legitimize it for for um, you know the public at large? 
I mean, I, I think it's 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 key to add that scams are not exclusive to, to crypto. There's been a, a massive rush in all crime, especially since lockdown in in, in cybercrime, in hacks, in in ransomware, in you know, phone calls and messages on social media. Vaccine certificates. In in everything. In, in everything. Um, you know, my, my parents get an average of one or two phone calls a day from HMRC or from BT or their phone right. provider or whatever it is, you know. Um, so I, I think partly it's 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 education. So understanding what, what crypto really is and and getting a better idea of of what crypto really is and also how scams work. So read the book, you'll learn lots and hopefully prevent yourself from, from falling for scams. But, you know, also there's a, a lot of people that fall for the scams that the scams know what they're doing. They hire the best marketing people. They have absolute sort of persuasive influencers that know exactly what they're doing and they target the most vulnerable people. So, you know, they're, they're targeting the most vulnerable people with all of these good promises. And there's a lot where people invest their money or send their money because they believe in something. They want to believe the claims made. Right. Yeah, and often the claims it, are too good to be true. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I'd say if there's anything that promises or guarantees sort of high returns or good returns you don't know what it is just go on the assumption that it's probably too good to be true um and and just don't leave claims or trust or hope wildly or invest you know things that you can't uh, afford to lose because often it's, it's just scammers playing on what people want to hear Absolutely. Well, listen, we're running out of time, guys. But so I've just got one question of Dave before we, we wrap up with asking you about where we can get the book, Erica. But Dave, um, what stood out to you as the most important element of this book, Crypto Wars? Well, I think it's what Erica's touching on there. It seemed to me in a lot of cases, it's it's almost as if people wanted to be scammed. by, Like they want to believe that this time it really is going to be different, that somehow... Yeah. Crypto, cryptocurrency is this nirvana, it's this wonderful new place. And so people want to believe. And I think that's not want to be a scam, but want to what they want, want to they believe, want to believe at this time is and that's what yeah, the scam. That it's not a scam, yeah, but that makes it the scam. Erica, where can we get crypto wars, fake deaths, missing billions, and industry disruption? So the book is uh, it's available on Amazon um, worldwide. It's available from all good bookstores, can be ordered. It's also available direct from the publisher, Kogan Page. So cogenpage.com and they're giving a, a discount crypto was 20 for anyone that orders it from, from there. So type, so type it in Google and it will show up in your country where it's available. Crypto wars 20 is the, uh, and that's not a scam, right? This is real. <laughs> yeah. Well, it depends where you buy it from. Depends where you get your money to to buy it from. Yeah, I hope not. <laughs> All right. Uh, Erica Stanford and uh, of course, Dave, Birch, regular co-host. Thanks for joining us on Breaking Banks. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week. If you like the show, make sure to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform or share it with a friend or share it on social media. We'll see you again next week with more Breaking Banks.